Good evening and welcome to Relationship Game Changers. My name is Kim Moore and on behalf of Amy Bernal and all of those praying ahead of the call, thank you so much. We appreciate you. Um, Really, you do make ministry easy. Uh, Prayer absolutely does change things and I'm so glad that we are praying people. So I appreciate you guys so much. I appreciate you when you pray here publicly, but I also know that many of you pray for the work God has given Amy and I to do, and we are uh, we're just we're we're very grateful, and we just pray that God would make give you the blessings that make you rich and add no sorrow to your lives. Thank you, thank you so much. Well, if this is your first time at Relationship Game Changers. Here we talk about the truths that apply to all of us that. Uh, transcend race, gender, biology, economics, education, political party, religious affiliation, and anything else that the adversary would use to uh, seek to steal, kill, and divide us as God's people. And so we thank you for joining us tonight. Uh, I was talking to a friend, uh, Norm, before the call, and he reminded me of a quote that I had put on um, I don't know. I don't know where he found it. He said it was one of, one of my pages. It's not my quote. It's by a German physicist. And it says, advances are made by asking questions. Discoveries are made by questioning the answers. And so here at Relationship Game Changers, I probably am uh, stir things up, look at things from a different perspective, handle the word of God, hopefully and faithfully and trustfully, responsibly, but just challenge us to unpack the word, go back and revisit some of the things that we've learned and that we've taught. Because when we fail to see progress, when we fail to see the kinds of signs and wonders and miracles that God has promised, if we continue to do the same thing, expecting different results, then shame on us. And I just believe that God is outfitting us with some new weapons. It doesn't mean the old or bad. It just means the war that we are in now will require more than what we used to win in the past. And so I just thank God that we're a part of that process. Quick recap, because I'm going to continue in Exodus. Uh, But just for those of you who haven't been on the call or need a quick catch-up, and certainly we post these calls, so if you want the in-depth, you're welcome to do that. Amy can provide those at the end. But um, we've been talking from Exodus, and we've been talking about its relevance. Actually, the first, uh, maybe up to chapter 6, but we started back. We started at 6 and worked our way back. But we've been talking about Exodus and its relevance for today. And so at the beginning of the month on the first Monday, we talked about the impending crisis in Exodus was Passover. And the Passover, the crisis was that God was going to sweep through the land and kill the firstborn of, of, of everyone except those who had the blood on the doorpost. And uh, we know that when that did happen and the Egyptians were woke up, there is not one that did not have in their family 
uh, man, beast that, for, of the firstborn that had not died. They were all impacted. And as a result of that crisis, God liberated his people, and they came out of Egypt loaded down with blessings, silver and gold and uh, just all kinds of valuable things that they would need to continue to worship God in the new land that he had promised him. And I told you last, uh, on that Monday, that there was, I gave you seven ways that God will use the impending uh, crises. And many of us, prophetic and otherwise, have sensed, and, and you got, some of you got. Uh, we've talked, and you've sensed that there's an impending crisis. It's not the end, but it is seismic to the point that it will move people into destiny and opportunity as only crisis can do. And so I gave you seven ways that God will use the impending crisis, and I based them in Exodus and what God did for Israel. And then I gave you five reasons why I believe God would do this. And we gave you five scriptural reasons in Exodus 6 why I believe God would do it. I also tell you guys all the time, in this day and time, when there's so many voices speaking, we need to be able to tether what we're being told to the word of God. We need to be able to tether what we're being told. We need to be able to evaluate it in the context of the word of God. And then last week I talked about the difficulty the Israelites had in trusting Moses. And don't get me wrong, as Richard chimed in and uh, we were uh, just conversing afterwards, don't get me wrong, Israel was rebellious people. And Richard reminded us that, you know, uh, generation died in the wilderness because they did not adapt, they did not conform, they did not change the affection of their worship from Egypt to God. And at one point they were calling the slop, the slaves they got in Egypt, they were calling it gourmet food. And so we talked about uh, how Israel, because, and specifically the hallmark of that was uh Aaron and Moses had went in and talked to Pharaoh, and as a result, Pharaoh multiplied the brutality and the burdens upon uh, the Israelites. So when Moses came and speak to that, spoke to them about what God would have them to do, they couldn't hear, the Bible says, because of the oppression, because of the forced labor. And so we talked about sometimes our inability to hear God is not... Uh, simply that we're being rebellious. In this case, you know, they were promised something and the exact opposite happened. And so they had difficulty trusting Moses and it took nine miracles, the 10th being Passover, nine miracles for the Israelites to be convinced that God was going to do what he said he was going to do even through Moses. And on that 10th miracle, when Moses gave the instructions, all of the Israelites complied, and the result uh, won their freedom by trusting God. So tonight, I want to talk about Moses, and I want to go back to Exodus 1. I've never read the Bible backwards, but it's kind of interesting, and it's to me, but I want to talk about Moses, and I want to offer to you and suggest to you that I believe that God is using Moses types in this hour, Moses types, and I want to tell you why, then I want to give you nine characteristics of a Moses type, 
And with these nine characteristics are nine questions that I would pose to you. Um, and some of us are maybe not be Moses. We might be an Aaron. We might be a Miriam. You know, we so but but they're good questions so that you can begin to locate yourself and where you are. And so, Father, I just thank you for your word. I thank you for what you're doing. I thank you, God, for making your word plain. I thank you, Father, for entrusting me with your truth and your people. Now, Father, I just thank you. Now, use all of me to glorify yourself. I ask you to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I know many people are talking about we're in the days of Noah, and I can see that too, you know, sexual perversion and immorality, the movies depicting the sex trafficking and the raping and murdering of kids, all of this stuff, this perversion, you know, it's sickening, and it does it does, I bear witness, I do believe that we're in the days of, of Noah with a heightened sexual immorality. You know, I think that um, what the elites, what we're seeing and what some of the elites have been engaging in for years, and I'm, I'm not excluding religion. I'm talking about the seven mountains and the elite, those at the top of those mountains, have been engaging in secretly for, for, for decades and decades. Back to the Bible, the masses are taking part now, literally or by proxy. Let me say that again. Before it was in secret, so there was just, you know, a select few, the the elite, those that had money and power, they were in all kinds of sexual debauchery. But what has happened and what makes this even worse now is that the masses, people that don't necessarily have money or that much money, people don't have any power or particular influence are engaging in this same degree of botchery. I watched a little clip yesterday of of uh, two men. Uh, they were, I don't even want to use the word married because I know what the word of God says, that marriage is between a man and a woman. But they, have, they had set up house as a couple uh, and, and, and they adopted two boys and were and big people in the LGBTQ community, this couple, this these were in the Atlanta area, adopted two little boys and began to rape, use them for pornography. There, I don't know that their court hearing has come up yet. You can Google this stuff. But bought a house, big old house, one worked for a bank. I mean, I mean, they weren't like super wealthy, but, you know, I guess they did all right for themselves. Nice home in a community of $800,000, $900,000 homes, built this home. And basically what it was, these little boys became their sex objects. They're in court now. They're, they're in jail now and will go to court. What am I saying? I'm saying that the debauchery that we're seeing sexually has moved from the ivory towers down to the streets, down to the common people, down to people like you and I. And for that reason, I would agree that we are in the days of Noah. There's just ample support for that. But just telling us we're in the days of Noah does not necessarily help instruct or equip the people how to behave 
how to conduct themselves, how to speak, how to interact. It doesn't necessarily provide us a strategy, if you will, how to deal with these times. Now, we know there will be a new heaven and earth. Uh, the Bible's clear about that. But until that happens, until Jesus comes again, we need to know how to live. And so I want to show you what's happening in the earth from another perspective, and that's why Moses are needed now more than ever. And uh, I want to tell you the reason why, give you nine characteristics of Moses and questions that you might consider for yourself. Now, to do that, you guys know I don't like to pull out scripture. I like to read context. And so there are 20 verses or 21 verses in Exodus 1, and I want to read that, and then I want to go from there. If we run a little bit over, if you need to jump off, go ahead. I do think this is an important message. So, um, again, you won't be offending anybody if you need to jump off at 7. At the end, always we will invite your comments and questions or thoughts, cares. You know, maybe you see this, maybe you totally disagree. This line isn't about, you know, we learn and grow not because we always agree with each other, but we learn and grow because there is the space to have conversation. And so we just thank God that this is that kind of place, and we are that kind of people. Exodus 1, beginning at verse 1, and I'm reading for those that are trying to follow me in your Bible. This is the Christian Standard Bible. It says, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt. Let me, just for sake of time, let me, let me jump down to verse 8. Well, no, let me jump down to verse 5. They're going to read some names. You can go back and read the names of the families that came out. Verse 5 says the total number of Jacob's descendants was 70. Joseph was already in Egypt. Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation eventually died. But the Israelites were fruitful, increased rapidly, multiplied, and became extremely numerous so that the land was full of them, filled with them. Verse 8, a new king who did not know Joseph came to power in Egypt. He said to his people, look, the Israelite, the Israelite people are more numerous and powerful than we are. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. Otherwise, they will multiply further, and when war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So the Egyptians assigned taskmasters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. They built Python, Pithom, and Ramesses as supply cities for Pharaoh. But the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied and spread so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. They worked the Israelites ruthlessly, ruthlessly and made their lives bitter with difficult labor in brick and mortar and in all kinds of field work. They ruthlessly, ruthlessly <laughs> imposed all this work on them. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, the first whose name was Shipra and the second whose name was Puah, when you help the Hebrew women give birth, observe, observe them as they deliver. If the child is a son, kill him. But if it's a daughter, she may live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had told them. 
they let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this and let the boys live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, The Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very numerous. Since the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Pharaoh then commanded all his people, you must throw every son born to the Hebrews into the Nile, but let every daughter live. That's Exodus 1. Now, I want to just pick out some verses just for sake of time and clarity and bring highlight to them. So let's start with verse 6. Verse 6 says, verse 6 says, that Joseph and all his brothers and all the generation eventually died. Um, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. So the state of the Israelites was a good one by all standards. The, the condition there, even though they were in slavery, many of them did well for themselves. Um, and so that was the the context of what's happening. And then we get to verse 8 through 10. And it says, then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power. So a new king who didn't know Joseph. So he had no allegiance, no regard, no commitment or obligation to Joseph or his family. And so he said, look, he said, look. He said, the Israelites have become too numerous numerous for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, or they will be more numerous. And if war breaks out, join their enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So when we think of a new king, I want to make this relevant to where we are now so that we can have some handles. So when we think of the new king, let's think elite. Let's think new world order. Let's think business, tech, pharma. Let's think about the wealthiest of the wealthy people in this world, not only this country, but in the world. The new king would be representative of this group of people. Stay with me. I'm going to tie it all together. But think new world order. Think about replacing the, the, the democratic model with a group of self-selected leaders and stakeholders, power brokers, who want to make decisions on behalf of the people. Think the elite who want to tell you what's best for you to eat. Food grown in labs, not grown, not animals, but food grown in labs. Food grown with, I, this is true. I went to Costco. I've got to tell you this because this is how real this is. I went to get some salmon, and I wanted to get some frozen salmon. And so it, it, uh, So I looked in the case, and there was this bright orange package, and it said Keta Salmon, K-E-T-A. And I'm like, what's that? And it's like wild-caught Keta Salmon. I'm like, Okay, what's Keta? I never heard of Keta salmon. Do you know, I researched it. I Googled it. And Keta salmon is salmon that's made from chum. It's like dog food. It is the stuff that, that 
a shark fisherman will throw into the water to attract the sharks. It is the waste. It's the worst of the worst. It's processed, colored, and made to look like salmon. And I have to admit, the package was attractive. It was the word that caught me. So just think, we have a group of people in the food industry, the FDA, we have foods in this country that are illegal to eat in other countries. And now we have this keto salmon. We have meatless burgers. We have people telling us what is good for us to eat. Just because something has the stamp of the FDA on it today means nothing. And that's just one example of one industry. The point I'm making is the new king, the elites, they have decided, they are deciding what is the best food for us to eat, what kind of vaccines we need. They are siphoning our freedom to decide for ourselves. So collectively, we can call this elite group a new king a new taskmaster, a new world order, a new way of doing things. Verse 9, this is what the new king says. This is what they think about. We're thinking about the elite. You can interchange them. The Israelites are too numerous for us. The people are too numerous. There are more of us than there are of the, the, the Egyptians. There are more of us than the elite. If war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So for fear of the people uprising, we must deal shrewdly with them. I just want you to think for a moment, population control. I just heard, I kid you not, and I, I want to share with you this only because I just need you to know this isn't my opinion. This stuff is happening, and it's happening, and we can see out in Scripture. So a couple couple days ago, Camilla Harris was on a short, a YouTube short, and one of the things that she said, literally, I quote, one of the things she said was, when we invest in clean energy and electric vehicles and reduce the population more of our children can breathe clean air and drink clean water. That is verbatim. So my question is, whose children? The elite? The power? So that more of our children. She's not talking about us because she's talking about population reduction. And if you don't think that's a real thing, just go Google Georgia Guidestones. The, the first order of business on those guidestones that were destroyed, the first order of business was to maintain humanity under 500 million people so as to keep it in balance with nature. The U.S. alone has over 300 million people, and currently there are over 7 billion people in the earth, in the world. So we're going to reduce the population to 500 million? Do you know how many of us would need to be destroyed to maintain that population? And then you think about Bill Gates, who has no political office. He says this, again, quote, the world is headed up to about 9 billion people. We're at 7 now. 
If we do a really great job on vaccines, reproductive health services, we can lower the population by 10 to 15%. Ted Turner, a total population of 250 to 300 million would be ideal. Guys, that's a 95% reduction in us. Rockefeller, we're on the verge of global transformation. All we need is the right crisis. What? To reduce the population. Kissinger, Henry Kissinger, depopulation is the highest priority. I'm sharing these things with you. This is not a political statement I'm making. I'm in the book of Exodus, and I want to tell you why Moses are needed now, and God is calling those that he has prepared to help deliver his people on whatever part of the continuum they are to knowing God. And I want to give you nine questions that you would I encourage you to consider as they relate to yourself. So let's go back, verse 11 through 14. This is what it says. So they put slave masters over them, that is the Israelites, to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Python and Ramesses as store cities or supply cities for Pharaoh. But the more they oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter and hard, with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields and all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked on them ruthlessly. So let's think about this. Let's think about this. Who do you think is one of the most hated groups in the earth right now? The last bastion of being able to control the people is Christianity. It's the last bastion. And what do we see in the earth? We see the beginnings of the persecution and the oppression of the Christian. You go, guys, go research this. I don't have time to give you case in point for everything that I'm telling you, but go reach, research this. And then think about it. How do, they, how do they break us down further? I owe, I owe, so off the work I go, debt. While they're relieving themselves and unloading their debt, they're heaping it on us. I can't tell you how many credit cards I get, how many requests for a loan. I mean, it's you too, not just me, you too. And so they, one of the ways they control is through debt. Another way is supplies. In Exodus, it was Ramathus and Pithon that these became the supply cities. Did you know? that there are federal seed vaults, one in Fort Collins, I think there are over a dozen, one is in Fort Collins, Colorado. It's called the National Center for Genetic Resources Preservation. But here's the thing, the page isn't found because they don't want us to know. Inside these seed vaults, and again, actually I said they're 20, they're 12, they're over 20, but inside these seed vaults, are the world's largest supply of seed genetic material for animals, humans. It includes semen and microbes and endangered plants. 
and these are under lock and key. Oh, you can visit this, some of these vaults. You just can't go in certain places. They're not just walk upright, walk right in. They are very secure. They are the supply cities for the elite, for the new world order. We're in Exodus. We're in Exodus 2023. I said that there are 20 over 20 in the U.S., but these banks are around the world. Remember, one world order, one economy, one people, uniformity of outcomes. Then how else do they do it? How else do they create bondage? Taxation. When you make money, it's taxed. When you pay for something, when you send it out, it's taxed. When it gets in the next person's hands, it's taxed. When it goes out of their hand, it's over taxation. It is exploitation of the taxes. The same money is being taxed multiple times. It's a system that's designed to defraud the people, to strip the people, to reduce the people's income. Then think, 50 to 60-hour work week. Some of us can't even rest. We think that being a workaholic is great. Do you know if you can't stop and rest, that is not a blessing. That's not the grace of God. That is bondage. We must be able to stop. And then technology offers so many conveniences. We don't even have to be together in real time. All we have to do is be on our phones. It robs us. Technology, for all of the wonderful benefits of technology, and there are many, but one of the things that it is vitally robbing us of is face-to-face time and human interaction. We can be anything we want on the computer. You can't be anybody and anything you want face-to-face, not for any length of time. So what is happening? As the king in Exodus oppressed the people more and more, what is happening in the earth today with inflation, with debt, with taxation, uh, taxation with the work, the amount of work hours we're doing with technology. We are inundating the people. We are wearying them. We are stripping them of their ability to live uh, independent of the government. And then what are the elite and what's the king doing? Building supply cities. Why? So that the population that remains will have food to eat. What else are they doing? They're buying up land in Maui. What are they doing? There's a land grab in Maui. The elites own the land or destroy the land. And who can buy the land after this? The elites, the new king. Even in Midwest, they're buying up the land. What is land? Well, if you have land, then you have agriculture. If you don't have land, you can't grow things. You can't. You can't. You can't shepherd. What do you shepherd if you don't have land? Oh, my gosh. Then verse 15 and 16. We're in Exodus. Don't get, we're in Exodus, but we're in 2023. Verse 15 and 16. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shiphrah and Puah, when you were, when you were helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery. So if the baby's a boy, kill him. If it's a girl, let him live. So how are we working on the population even more? How are we destroying people's lives? Well, <laughs> oh, my gosh. Need we talk about sex trafficking? 
Need we talk about pedophilia and what we're doing? We're destroying. Need we talk about abortion? We're destroying the babies. We're destroying. We are we are doing gender reassignment surgery. Do you understand when, when you manipulate the gender through surgery, we make people sterile. If you're sterile, you cannot reproduce. Guys, this is not just a frontal attack. It is coming from every single side. That's why we have to elevate this conversation to truth. That's why we need Moses right now, because the people understood what God did, but Moses understood how God was going to do it. And Moses understands strategy. Moses understands strategy. The people understood the result. They believed Moses after they saw the miracles. Moses performed the miracles. We must be a a miracle-performing people with the heart and the attitude of Moses. What else are we doing? We're emasculating and feminizing men. We have professional athletes wearing dresses, pink dresses. We have men. There's a saying in Hollywood, and particularly among black men, again, go research this for yourself. One of the prices, one of the thresholds is that you have to dress as a woman. Think Tyler Perry. Think Medea. Think, what does he do? He dresses as a woman. And I'm guilty. I laughed. I thought it was funny because I didn't understand what was really taking place. But look at some of the, particularly the black comedians and and the the black uh, male actors, perhaps um, uh, not just limited to black, but it is very prominent among black. Look at Will Smith's son, the cross-dressing. It feminizes men. What happens when you feminize a man? Men. You remove the protector from society. Because male is the protector. He, when he's operating, doesn't mean that the spirit of God can't protect through a female because a female lion will kill you just as quickly and perhaps quickly lion. So don't get it twisted. God can use a female to protect. But in our society, our domain, maleness was associated with protection. Well, if, she's act, if he's acting like a female, what is he going to protect? And then there's pedophilia. It hijacks the spirit of our little boy. It destroys the spirit, the identity. It crosses boundaries God never intended. It makes people victims. And if you make people victims, then all that is necessary is a perpetrator. Think the king, think the elite. Then vaccines. Do you know how many men, 20s and 30s, are dropping debt? We're not talking about whether they had the vaccine or not, but don't you think it's strange that this age group, why? Because our young men are fighters. What does the Bible say? The Bible says, he's speaking to little children. And John, he says, I commend you little children because you have believed God. Young men, because you have fought and overcome the evil one. Fathers, because you know God. So if the young men who are our fighters are dead, how do we rise up? And then there's disease. There's sickness and disease, which are evil. 
and come from the adversary. All of these things. Then you think about food and water supply. How do you control the people? Limit the food. Remember the supply ships in 2020? Couldn't get food. Remember the run on paper and toilet paper and food in the grocery store? And then think about the water. What's happening to the water? And then man-made disasters. Remember the trains that were just simultaneously catching on fire? Remember the food plants that were catching on fire? Think about the fires in the different places, most recently Maui, the floods. I say man-made. <laughs> That's another day. We'll just leave it at the disasters. And then there's psychological warfare that pits me and you against each other. But when the midwives obeyed God and let the boys live, God blessed them. But the king was on a killing rampage. So let me be clear. I'm going to say this real clearly. I'm going to give you the nine things, Moses, but I wanted to set this up because it's very easy to say we need an Elijah right now. I've heard that. It's very easy to say God is raising up you know, the Elijah's for the last day, and we're in the days of Noah. But I want to offer a different perspective. And so let me be clear about, this is my belief. You may believe different, but I'm just going to put it out there, and probably if I was on YouTube, this would have already been cut. But let me just say it here. I do not believe that there is a climate crisis. Google weather modification. Well, I'm going to leave it right there. Google weather modification. I got to give you this one example. Did you know they can feed clouds with chemicals to make it rain? The problem is when the rain comes down, it's full of chemicals. Google this stuff, guys. There is no energy crisis or shortage of resources. These are the narratives of the new king, the world order, to manipulate people to buy into an agenda that is, intent, that, it, that is intended to eventually annihilate them. Let me say this again. The narratives that you're hearing in mainstream media, climate, energy crisis, shortage of resources, these are the narratives that are created by the new king to manipulate the people to get buy-in to an agenda that's intended to annihilate them. Go back to population reduction. How are we going to do it? Think all of these things. So to, to support this narrative, this false notion of an energy crisis, they've got to blame fossil fuels. And they got to push the need to convert controllable. Uh, to, um, to, they have to push the narrative that we need to be on the grid, that they need to convert uh, electricity and use that as power to support the food storage. They need. We need the supply ships to be detained. We need fires in the food and manufacturing plants. We need mass animals. Google this: mass animals to die and destroy, so that we can create the need for alternate kinds of food. Land, as I told you before, is being bought. And here's a question. During the famine in Joseph's day, who owned and distributed the food? Keep in mind, Satan does not create new ideas, 
Rather, he exploits God's ideas. What I believe is that there will be people that God will uh, enrich with resources, things, and money to be the supply for his people in the day of need. But I also believe there is an enemy working equally hard to get as many people dependent on the government as possible. I was telling Amy, it's interesting to me that there, the, the amount of building that's going on in our area, maybe yours too, and the two things I see being built are hospitals and urgent care and apartments or home communities that you can't buy but you lease. Now let me ask you, if we're going to a healthier climate, if we're going to living more sustainably, why do we need more hospitals? Just a question. Here's the thing. I'm giving you the nine things, I promise. I'm just let me just say this one other thing. Why I don't believe that there's a climate crisis, energy crisis, or resource shortage is this simple thing. God knows all. And this means he knows everything about anything there is something to know about past, present, and future. This God, our God, who's the living God, thoughtfully and carefully planned and made earth sustainable, buildable, or scalable, and plentiful for all the people he knew he would create. And all babies are created by God even when they come or it happens by a manner that is less than God's ideal, meaning only God create, create babies. You can put sperm and an egg in a, in a petri dish, but still only God causes conception. And this God knew how many people would be on the planet And so there's no shortage of resources. Energy, land, water, and food are abundant. People of God take refuge in that thought. Because to suggest otherwise, to suggest there's a shortage in what God created is to insult God, that he didn't have the foreknowledge or the ability to provide for what he created. That's not the God I serve. So the only way to support a narrative of lack is to convince the people of scarcity, is to destroy the land, the animals, and the people. And I would tell you, even so, God will provide for his people just as he did in Egypt, and they will be fruitful, increased, rapidly multiply, and become extremely numerous and the land will be filled with us despite the enemy's intention to annihilate us. David said this, I have been young and I have been old, and I have never seen the righteous forsaken nor their seed found begging bread. This is the God we serve. This was the situation in Exodus 1. And it's the situation, I believe, in America today. Yes, the days of Noah when we talk about the sexual immorality and the perversion and all of that and the mur- all of that stuff. 
But this, what I'm telling you today, gets to the heart. It is the jugular. It is the essence of what is happening in the earth. And sex is just being used to advance this agenda. Let me say that again. Sex is being used. Sexual perversion is being used to advance this agenda. And back then, God raised up Moses to deliver the people, his people. And today, I believe God is raising, has raised up Moses to deliver his people near and afar off. Some have not even been introduced or, or met God in such a way that they would choose him. This is the revival, the deliverance that I believe that is at hand right now. And so we have a choice. We can continue to keep playing church, not answer the real questions, not deal with the real issues. We keep having our prayer parties that don't result in healings. We can keep having our healing services and people questionably are healed or get healed and then they go back to being the way they were. We can continue to have our prophetic services and our yearly sermon series on marriage and whatever other sermon series we're having. We can continue to have our concert worship services driven by emotion and ignorantly or and knowingly or ignorantly co-sign with this agenda with the enemy, or we can recognize the need for some radical new strategies, which means radical new people to address the threats that we're currently facing together collectively, regardless of gender, biology, regardless of race, regardless of economics, education, political party, or religious affiliation. We need Moses types and their nine characteristics and nine questions I have for you to consider for yourself. I hope you're tracking with me. I hope I was able to lay out for you in the clearest way possible that what we're experiencing in the earth today, the Israelites experienced it back then. There is nothing new under the sun, Solomon says. I do believe in every generation, God gives some the ability to speak to the day's concerns that know and see what he's doing and are working with him, and these types are Moseses. So let me give you the nine characteristics. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to give you the characteristic, I'll give you the scripture where I got it, and then I'm going to ask you the question. Nine, you ready? The first one is, Moses was raised and educated in an impressive system that he would later confront. Think about it. Moses was a prince. He was raised by Pharaoh's daughter, which would make him a prince. He grew up in the ways of the Egyptians. He understood protocol. He understood etiquette. He understood the system of oppression that the Israelites were using, I mean, sorry, that the Egyptians were using against the Israelites. That's in Exodus 2, 1 through 14. The question I have for you is, in what system were you raised, rewarded, and consecrated? See, Moses' time in, in the palace wasn't all bad. He ate the best food. There was a pleasure to being in the palace. There, there, there was a pleasure to it. It wasn't all, oh, you know, just terrible. I mean, he wore the finest clothes, ate the best food, you know, could partake of the entertainment of that day. He was, there was a reward. There was a benefit to being in that system. But there was also a consequence. He would have to make a decision. 
So in what system were you raised? In what system were you rewarded? In what system did you experience benefits? Number two, God, the Bible says in Philippians 2.13, God gives us the desire to do what pleases him. God called Moses to be a deliverer to rescue his people, the underdog, before Moses was even put in his mother's womb. That was his call and his purpose that would play out through his life. That's Exodus 2, 11 through 18. What do you say? Three times Moses, uh, uh, one time Moses delivered uh, the children of Israel, or three, two times Moses delivered people, and one time he tried and he failed. The first time the Egyptian was fighting the Hebrew, and Moses saw it, and he delivered the Hebrew by killing the Egyptian. The second time is when he had run because, oh, I'm sorry, the second time was he tried, he saw two Hebrew boys fighting, and he tried to intervene and mediate, and the one said to him, who do you think you are? You know, do you think you're God? And the Bible says, oh, my gosh, this is, this is known, and Pharaoh knows, and the Bible says he ran because he feared for his life. In the running, he was in the wilderness and met up with Jethro's daughters who were shepherded, and they were bringing their flock to water. But when they brought their flock to water, the other shepherds, the men, just kind of overpowered them and moved them out of the way. Well, Moses stood up for them, intervened, and rescued them from the shepherds and fed their flock. So my question to you is, what has God given you the desire to do? What's your passion? What just gets your goat? What makes you angry when you see it? What troubles you? What problem has God created you to be a solution for? Number three, Moses was able to refuse the king's table, his dainties, his pleasures. Remember I said in, that, that, that there was a pleasure and a pleasantness to being in the kingdom and being raised in the kingdom. And Moses participated. But there came a time when the Bible says Moses preferred to identify with the people rather than the one in power. He chose to identify with the people. And I'm sorry, I didn't write that scripture down. I will find it for you. But it talked about Moses preferred to be with the Israelites than with, uh, I'm sorry, the he told you. Uh, I'll have to find it for you. So the Bible talks about he preferred to identify with the people of God, with his people, the people that God had called him to help. And so he was able to say no to the king's dainties. And I'll tell you, there are thresholds. And everybody sitting on the top of the mountain, people with great influence, and I'm talking about Christian and non-Christian alike, there is a threshold. There is a cost. And a lot of times, it will cost you more than you want to pay and keep you there longer than you have the desire to stay. At some point, each of us have to decide, are we going to continue to eat off the king's table? Are we going to continue to, to, to keep doing the things we know don't work for sake of the people and the relationships that we have formed, for sake of the opportunity and conveniences we enjoy to perpetuate something that's not working. Moses decided to side with the people of God than with the king. 
with what kind of people do you prefer to identify? Have you come to the place? Is God challenging you in your relationships? Who will you prefer to be with? One of the things I realized about Jesus, after he spoke and and amassed crowds, we don't see him standing there signing autographs. We always see him retreating to a mountain to get alone, get by himself, get with his, his few people or whatever. He didn't hang around. I think part of the challenge we have is when we hang around and we let indirectly things feed our ego. Man, that was awesome. That was amazing. Da, da, da. And, guys, I'm speaking to you as one that can be as, as affected. Thank you, Amy. It's Hebrews 11:24 through 25. Moses preferred to be with the people rather than Pharaoh. And you and I will have to make that decision too because some of us are around very powerful people. I would tell you this, and, and Amy can testify, I have been around powerful people, huge ministries in the green room, had lunch two feet apart. And I believe that God has had his hand on me and has kept me because I wouldn't have been able to keep myself at that point. And so I just, I, I thank God. I didn't always understand it, got mad at God, all those kinds of things. But I really believe in the delays and in the, in the challenges, the thing that happens, we get mature on the inside. We get bigger and more mature spiritually, and not just spiritually, but emotionally as well, because, you know, Satan will play on our emotions. So let's see, what kind of people do you bring? Number four, Moses was given a family. He had a family. He had Jethro. He had Zipporah. He had a support system. Who's your family? Who is your family? And might I suggest to you your family may not be your biological family. I'm not saying that you shouldn't love them, that you shouldn't care for them, pray for them. And if God has you to intervene or to hold space, by all means do that. But the Bible clearly says your family are they that do the will of God. They that do the will of God. And how can we do the will of God? The Bible says in Hebrews 8.10 that God put his law, his essence, in our mind. He put it in our mind. And he wrote his essence in our heart or in our gut. So how do we know who's doing the will of God? It's in our mind and it's our gut. And we are governed by who God is and who us, and we are most deeply connected with those that are doing the will of God. Everybody who's saying they're Christian today, guys, we really need to be very much more discerning. But he gave them a family, and you have a family too. You do. And it may not be your biological family. And guys, this isn't always necessarily about, you know, you living next door to the people. It's a heart thing. But living close is also a way that we express and we do family. So I'm not saying one or the other. I'm just simply saying that it goes deeper than living next door to each other. That's Exodus 2, 19 through 22. God gave Moses a family. Number five, Moses was trained, Exodus 3, 1. You know, he had 40 years, 40 years. 40 years in the wilderness with Jethro. 40 years. What does it say in Exodus uh, 
3, 1, it says, Meanwhile, Moses was shepherding the flock of Jethro, the priest. He had the flock on the far side of the mountain. I'll have to look up that number too. But 40 years, actually 40 years, he was 80. And I'll have to get that reference. He was 80. So I don't feel so bad now, you know, 60. But, but he was 80 before he was released fully into his purpose. So, guys, don't get caught up on your age. When God has something for us to do, our age does not matter to him. He will prolong and elongate our life as long as it's needed to fulfill our purpose. We just need to make sure we're being about our purpose. But he was trained. He was trained in a family. He was trained by serving another, by taking care of another's flock by taking care of his another's possessions. Who trained you? Where are you getting trained? Who are you serving? Ah, Number six. I could go on on all of these. Let me just give you the last few. Number six. Moses had a defining and a clarifying moment. That's Exodus 3, 2 through 9. You know the story of the burning bush. I'm not going to read it. The defining moment for Moses was he saw a bush on fire. Now, Moses was not a stranger to fire, but the bush was not being consumed. And the Bible says that God waited to see if Moses would go and look at it. And when he did, the angel of the Lord spoke to him. What's your clarifying moment? What did it for you? What was What was it that really brought you to an awe of God? It could be a crisis you personally experienced that brought you to your knees. And oftentimes, sadly, it is a crisis that brings us to our knees. It could be a loss. It could be a divorce. It could be a loss of a child. It could be a loss of a spouse. You know, it it could be financial loss. It could be a job. I don't know. Wherever your ego is set, that's mm, a likely place where there might be somewhat of a clarifying moment. And there may not be one. There may be several. And the clarifying moments aren't always doom and gloom or misery either. There was no misery in seeing this burning bush. It was quite the sight to look at. I mean, I think if it were me, I would just be staring. How can this be? That is crazy. And then he did it again with me, Shadrach, and Abednego. They were in a fire and didn't burn up. So that, so it's not just, and certainly in my own experience, there are times where God has done some miraculous things, and I had this sense of awe about him. So your clarifying moment, it doesn't have to be a negative thing. I'm just simply saying a lot of times it's the negative things that will bring us to the place that we will consider something new and different. And God needs us to consider something new, to see him in a different way. Because God just doesn't only want to reveal Christ to us. He wants to reveal Christ in us. And in order to reveal Christ in us, he has to touch you on the inside and cause an awe or allow a crisis to bring you to that place. So what has been your clarifying moment or moments? What's been a defining moment in your life? We've all had them. If you're not sure, ask God, God, what was the clarifying moment? Bring it back to me. Make it clear to me. Number seven, Moses understood his human condition and limitation. 
not going to read them all, but Moses had, do you know Moses had one, two, three, four, five, six fears he had to overcome to fulfill his purpose. And fear stands between you and your destiny. He had to overcome the fear of death. He had to overcome the fear of authority and confrontation, the fear of being alone and unsupported. Remember, the Israelites didn't buy in initially. Not the leaders, not the people. He had, he had to deal with the fear of rejection, the fear of not being heard, the fear of public speaking, fear of inadequacy. He was aware of his human frailty. He was aware that by himself he was not enough for what God had called him to do. Moses had an internal, the only way you can be aware of your condition and your limitations is if you have an internal world, an internal um, interaction, conversation with God, that you've invited God into that internal space, that internal talk that you have with yourself, that Holy Spirit is welcome to show me. Holy Spirit, show me. You know, your, your, your heart never stops thinking. God, show me my thoughts. Holy Spirit, show me my real thoughts. Show me what's really going on inside of me. Why is that important? Because if you're going to eat from the gut of God, and you do, if you eat truth, it's going to mess with that internal conversation you have when it's inconsistent with the conversation God has for you. And that's what Moses found out. That's really difficult in this day and time because we have all kinds of things. Nothing shall be impossible to him to, to believe. We have, I can do all things through Christ. Those things, that, I'm, this is not a negation of that. But we are not superhuman people. We are human beings who have chosen to live by the power of the Holy Spirit. We are 100% human and we are 100% spirit. And so Moses didn't see himself as exceptional in any way spirit. He wasn't a super spiritual person. He was aware that he had limitations and he learned how to surrender them to God, just like Jesus did type of Jesus, did in Philippians 2, 5 through 8. So my question is, what is your inner world like? Do you even dare to consider it? Do you really want to know what you really think? Oh, not what you've told yourself, but what you really think. The other day I posted something about expectations and how hurt I was. And it's just, you know, and I had to, I had to deal with the fact that I had held some feelings about a particular person, and I didn't even think I was mad at him until the Holy Spirit revealed my thoughts to me. Can the Holy Spirit reveal your thoughts to you? And guess what? When he does, he'll confirm it. He'll confirm it. Because when he revealed this thing to me the other day, I was asking Amy about it, and she said, well, I just think you just, you know, just have some anger going on or something like that. Like, okay. But he's never without a witness. So this isn't about you going on your own journey, you know, I think this is what I'm thinking all No, sit with the Holy Spirit. Let him speak to you, and then he will always confirm truth is never without a witness. And then number eight, he feared God. He feared God. And as I told you before, the fear of the Lord means to eat from the gut of God. Moses ate. He knew he was dependent on God. So he not only knew his human condition and his limitations and his frailties and his fears, he understood his dependence on God. And one, case, one time he says, and again, I didn't write this scripture down. What did I just stop? I have to find it. He said, God, if you don't go, I'm not going. If you don't go before me, I'm not going. And if you destroy these people, you might as well destroy me too. 
He knew that if God didn't move, he was in trouble. And one of the things that I think, I was talking to a friend today, and I was like, you know, one of the reasons I think we don't see the miracles, signs and wonders that we desire to see, specifically the miracles, is because many of us are unwilling to put ourselves in situations where it's do or die. We're unwilling to put ourselves in situations where we don't have a plan A, B, C, or D. I remember when God called me, I, all my eggs are in one basket. I don't have a side thing going on. You know, I don't have this going It's all one thing that's happening. I've stood in situations. I've, 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 I've ministered, and, and in the midst of it, someone comes up on the floor writhing as a snake, hissing at me. And the Lord gave me the grace to cast it out. But there were people around. Now, what was I going to do, stand there? And there are other situations, but the times that I've seen the miracles of God are times when I've been willing to put myself in a place of standing alone if nobody stood with me. And on one particular occasion, I said, God, now if you don't move, I'm going to be humiliated really, really bad. Now, I don't mind if you need me to be humiliated to get done what you want to get done, great. But I prefer not to be humiliated in this situation. And he answered my request because I was doing what he wanted me to do. And so what I'm saying to us is if you're going to pray for miracles, then expect to be in a situation where there's no other option but God where you're going to be royally embarrassed if God doesn't do something because that's the place of not faith. See, faith will get you there, but trust will keep you there when it doesn't look like it's going to happen. That's another conversation. What have you eaten from God's gut? And you know you've eaten from God's gut because your life will change. When God puts his essence in your mind, when he writes his essence in your gut or your inner being, and interrupts that conversation, your life will change. It won't be maybe, might, it won't be this program that it will change. And then lastly, Moses was meek. Numbers 12 and 3 says that, uh, that Moses was very meek above all the men who were upon the face of the earth at that time. Moses was the meekest. He was the most humble of all men. What does that mean? He was mild. He was gentle in spirit toward God and people. He wasn't harsh. You know, when he spoke firmly, you could obviously you could hear the love. Matthew five 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 says, "Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth." And this last scripture I want to read, Amy. If you want to get ready to come on. I'm going to bring it into a landing here. This one scripture I wanted to read is 2 Timothy. And I wanted to read it because it also talks about um, uh, 2 Timothy 2. And it says in 24, the Lord's servant must not quarrel, but must be gentle to everyone able to teach, and patient, instructing his opponents with gentleness. Perhaps God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of truth. Then they may come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. So here's my question. Could it be 
that many of us are still in bondage because we are proud, we're not able to teach, we're impatient, we're not able to instruct, our lives are not instructive, and we're not gentle, we're harsh. Could it be that we're still in the snare of the devil because we haven't become who God desires us to be? And therefore, we have no influence or authority against Satan and his kingdom. Just something to think about. Father, I'm asking you to help break this word down further and do what you only you can do. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to work with you and to, and to stand with you, Father. I just bless you and I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amy? Amen. Thank you, Kim. This is something to go back and listen to these nine nine keys. I think we can all ask ourselves. This is really good. And um, before we take comments or questions, I want to go ahead and give the replay number for anyone who needs to hop off. The number for tonight, the call number is 276. So the um, replay number to call is 605-475-4980. Followed by three four one zero 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 pound, and again tonight is two seven six pound. Wow, I got stuck on this ninth one: gentleness and meekness, and where there is pride and an unteachable spirit. You know, just what that really means. You know, if we're not gentle, that does point to pride. That I got stuck on that one. <laughs> That and the, um, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to simply say that Hebrews 8.10, it talks about the new covenant, and it talks about, you know, we often think about, I've taught on before the essence of God, and I just want to clarify, there's the essence of God, his nature, and then there are his characteristics. Mm-hmm. Satan can copy characteristics. That is, Satan can appear as an angel of light. He can appear gentle, he can appear kind, self-control. Those are characteristics. But Satan cannot copy the essence of God. The essence of God is love. The essence of God is light. The essence of God is forgiveness. There's no forgiveness in Satan. None in Satan. The essence of God is truth. There is no truth in Satan. So he cannot emulate the essence of God, but he can play with the characteristics of God. And that's why it's not simply enough to have the character of Christ. We need the essence of the God that was in Christ. That's all I'm going to say. I better stop. Stop. That is is so good. I want to open up if anyone has a a comment or a question on these nine keys for characteristic of Moses. um, Go ahead and star six and we'll be able to hear you. Yeah, this this is Richard. Uh, um, I just... (laughs) Well, I love these teaching sessions. They just, they just do so much for me. But uh, 
you know, Exodus 33:15 was the verse you were looking for about if uh, if you don't go with us, uh, you know, then oh, I go. You. Yeah, yeah. So it, uh, but uh, he, uh, one of the things that that I saw here in the Word as I was going through it while you were were um, teaching was that uh, when the Lord called Moses to to go, uh, Moses started making excuses about his speech and all this stuff, you know, that he couldn't do, to the point where the Lord got angry with him. Mm-hmm. And and then it says that he assigned Aaron to him. Uh, he mm-hmm. said, I'll have you to go with you to make speech. Now, that cost Moses, you know, uh, because Aaron was the one who ended up making the cold golden calf when Moses hadn't come down from the mountain. And it ended up costing the life of 23,000 uh, people because they set up that golden calf and worshipped it. And there were other rebellions between Aaron and his family against Moses. Uh, and it was much like the situation that God did with Abraham. You know, he said, get away from your family and your kindred and go to the place where I had showed you. But he took his father and he took, his, took Lot. And it delayed what God had for him over 10 years, you know. And uh, so there's always, it's always best when God gives you a command or an order, you know, uh, he'll make way for you if you keep resisting him like he did with the children of Israel when they kept asking for a king. You know, that was a horrible, horrible decision for them to make. And um, because they really forsook God as their Lord, you know, as 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 the God of the uh, of the Jewish people, and uh, so it um, it just kept bringing out all these different things. And and in regards to um, you know, they're giving these vaccines now to little babies, you know, uh, six months and under. Uh, they're vaccinating wow. right out of the womb. Yeah, and and also at one time, America's corn crop would feed the whole world, and we decided to take 25% of it and turn it into ethanol, which doesn't work at all. It absolutely reduces the mileage of the automobile by the exact proportions of the ethanol that you put into it. You know, so uh, mm. yeah, I mean it. it, it, it there's so much of this stuff that is just so, um, I mean, I was, I was looking at this list and I'm thinking, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and he's still 500 million people from 7.8 billion that are on the planet now. That means they want to yeah. kill 7.3 billion people, you know, and yeah. uh, it just, uh, <clears throat> so, um, but I, I've been fascinated with this and, and that, the one last thing I'll say before I go, the the laws of sowing and reaping come in here so clearly to me in Exodus chapter 1 because they drowned all those Hebrew boys in, in the Nile. But when, they came, when the children of Israel came out of Egypt, the entire army of Egypt was drowned in the Nile or in the Red Sea. Mm. So, you know, uh, yeah. So the... The sowing and reaping is is wow. a law that never stops, you know. And wow. what's a man so, you know? So uh, praise, praise God. God. Yeah. Good <laughs> stuff. God. Good. Now you're sending me back to my Bible to read some more. <laughs> I know. I want to go back and read again. 
thought about the Hebrew boys in the Nile. I think also, mm-hmm. wow. Glory to God. <laughs> Praise mm-hmm. God. Well, this has been good. Thank you, Kim. Thank you again for this. Mm-hmm. This is good. And next week we're looking forward to you coming on, Richard, and teaching. Such a great mm-hmm. conversation to hear from both of you. Mm-hmm. I'm inspired by this that we're learning tonight, you know, so it just uh it puts the hunger in you, you know. That's <laughs> right back mm-hmm. to the word to read. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff, good stuff. Guys, don't forget to share it. If if you're getting something out of it, yeah. I mean, I'm just, Amen. you know, I just, I really just believe that, 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 um, as so many do, that God is doing a new thing. And oh, I always want to say that it doesn't mean the old is bad. It just right. means that God is adding some arrows, some weapons to the arsenal. And... Yes. You know, we do well to consider them, to pick them up, and to use them. Um, and so that's that's you know that's that's where we are right now. Yes, we are. Yeah. Or mm-hmm. you can also hear it as a podcast on Spotify. Mm-hmm. Is another text share it if you don't like dialing in, but absolutely sharing it. Mhm. Yeah. And reading <laughs> is always good for mm-hmm. our own study. Mhm. Mhm. Oh. And um, well, oh, if you are looking on on wherever you get your podcasts, there we're on all the podcasts. You can go to Relationship Game Changers with Kim Moore. Is how you'll find it titled Relationship Game Changers with Kim Moore. With like a W slash Kim Moore. Just, mm-hmm. Thank you, Kim. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. And we look forward to hearing you next week. God bless you and good night. Good night.